Would you grab your Bibles, turn to John 18, and go to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I've shortened our time together um, because there's just some important things. And so we're going to get next week into Pilate's question of what is truth. Um, And so we're going to, as we kind of finish things up today, look at five aspects of Jesus' description in regard to his kingdom. So let me review from last week so we can put everything in context today. So during this night, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to go back and forth between three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. In each of the trials, we see the darkness of the human heart and we see the glory of the innocence and the majesty and the power of Jesus. We will see that finally the religious leaders think, okay, we've got this guy. We have dealt with this guy. We've been trying to get him. We've been trying to get rid of him. We've been actually trying to murder him and kill him for a while. Now we have him. They think they're in charge. They are not in charge of anything. Christ um, is submitting to the Father. The Father is in charge of this night. This is the sovereign plan being unfolded. Um, As Jesus has these Jewish trials, they are looking for lies. We have religious leaders who know the Ten Commandments and know that you shouldn't lie, and they are looking for false answers. And yet, in a minute, we're going to see that they, they have been lying all night. They're looking for false answers. They are wanting to murder Jesus, but they don't want to get close to Pilate because that will defile them. They have no clue that they're already defiled by all the decisions that they have been making. And yet, all the while this is taking place, Jesus is trusting the Father submitting to it because he came to please the Father and he came to rescue you and I. We saw last week the weakness of Peter and we learned from Peter that he followed at a distance instead of following close. Because when we follow close to Christ, there's a security that comes in our life because our gaze is fixed on his gaze. 
he is closer to be able to speak to us. And so Peter followed at a distance, warming himself by the fires of the world where he got accusations and three times he denied. And we finished last week talking about the distinguishing line between Christians and the world is that we are people who embrace the truth of Jesus' words. And so as we come to this next section, we're going to move into the civil trial um, that is connected to Pilate, the Roman governor. Um, and so they're going to, they didn't get anywhere with the high priest with all the lies and trying to find things. So now they're going to, even though they've made a pronouncement that they want Jesus dead, um, they can't do this. And so they've got to send him um, to Pilate. So look with me again in verse 28. And I want to talk for a moment that the defiled are always defiled. That's the characteristic of the, those who are defiled. So verse 28 says this, Then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, from the house of Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. That's Pilate's headquarters. Your translation may say praetorium. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. Let me talk about the governor's headquarters or the praetorium. This was on the eastern side of uh, or excuse me, the western side um, near the, the Jaffa gate that surrounded the walls that surrounded there. And there were, there were gates that you entered into the city of Jerusalem. And so this was the place where all the big decisions that Rome made in Israel would happen and take place. And this is where Pilate lived. He resided. And, um, and, and this is where big, again, when, when they wanted to communicate something to the Jews, a new law may have had come from Tiberius Caesar um, it would come to Pilate, he would announce this to the people. Or if there was some decision that he needed to make, um, some kind of pronouncement, he would, he would do this. And so they go to this. And this was kind of like the kind of centralized command center for Rome where he would hear cases that are there. So they, they have pronounced Jesus to be killed, but they, as the Jewish leaders, did not have the power and the authority to do this, and so they've got to come to Pilate to get this done. And so it tells us that they wouldn't enter his headquarters because they didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. For me, this is a bit laughable um, as you look at this. Uh, and they have been breaking every kind of Jewish law on this night with the trials, they have been lying, they have no conviction over these sins. For them, it doesn't matter. They just want to get rid of Jesus. And so however we get to this place, they are okay with it. And yet they are okay with all the sin that they have been committing, all the lies they have been pursuing, all the desire to murder on this night. They, of all things, are like, okay, we can't go into Pilate's house, into his headquarters, because then we will be officially defiled and we will not be able to eat the Passover. This is what happens with people who are consumed with and caught up in sin and don't pursue the truth. They don't have a desire for truth. They don't recognize glaring issues that are a part of their lives. They have been sinning and defiling themselves for years. They have been making money and profit every Passover over the people coming to the temple to worship and to stay they would manipulate, they would lie, they would price gouge. Jesus twice has turned over the money changers that are inside the temple. He has made a havoc of this. He has, he has battled them with, with His words. And, and now they think this, 
that they're okay. They can do all of those things. They can lie. They can manipulate. They can desire murder in God's house. They can do all of this, but the only, and they're still clean, but the thing that's going to make them defiled is that they enter the Gentiles' house, which, by the way, in the law was not there. This was a rule that they made up for themselves. Over the years and the centuries, the Jews had established from the religious leaders, distance yourself from Gentiles. Don't go near them. Don't enter their house. Don't touch them. Don't be around them because they will defile you. Long, long time ago, God had told them that Israel would be a light for the nations. You cannot be a light for the nations if you want to distance yourself from those who do not know the Lord. So on this night, they don't want to enter Pilate's headquarters because they think that will defile them from eating the Passover when they are already defiled. This, again, they are ignoring what the Scripture said to them, and they are, watch this, listen, church. I I talk about this all the time. We cannot establish man-made laws that rise above the written text in Scripture and that those things become priority over what God's Word says. And so on this night, they don't want to come into Pilate's house because they want to participate in the Passover. They have fooled themselves that they are not defiled, but the defiled are defiled unless they come to Jesus and repent. Let me tell you a little bit about Pilate just for a second so you can understand. They, the Jews, hated Pilate. When he was, there were were three Herods connected to the family that were leading Israel in three different regions. One of them was such a bad leader that the Jews went to Tiberius Caesar and says, this, this guy, this, this Herod that you have over us is so bad, we don't want him anymore. This is what he's doing. So Caesar appointed Pilate in this role, and then the two other Herods who didn't really cause as much problem, evil men, not good men. And so this is how Pilate got his role. So when Pilate came to Jerusalem... He came in with a big army, and he had his army make these banners, big banners with the image of Caesar on it, and he marched into Jerusalem, into Israel with these banners. They were kind of gold laid on these banners of the image, and he came into the city, and the Jews said, no, Pilate, um, we, we, we don't have graven images, and so you've got, get, you've got to get rid of this. And Pilate's like, I'm not getting rid of this. And so one of the other places that Pilate stayed was in Caesarea, And so Pilate goes to Caesarea, and the Jewish leaders come to Pilate, and for five days they say to Pilate, you've got to get rid of these banners. We do not allow these in the land. Again, the hypocrisy is great. Um, But the religious leaders in this moment moment against Pilate are saying no, and Pilate says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so he threatens them, and the Jewish leaders hold out their neck to say to Pilate, then you can kill us. We are willing to die on this hill. Pilate acquiesces, lets go, and and allows and gets rid of those and doesn't kill any of them. A little bit later, Pilate discovered that Jerusalem has a water problem. You can't get water into Jerusalem, and so he needs aqueducts to take water from other places to get it inside the city, and so he has to figure out, how am I going to pay for this? 
So he goes to the temple treasury and he steals money out of the temple treasury to pay for this. So obviously the Jewish leaders see this and they are very upset about this. And so this is Pilate. These are the Jews. They are having to make this work. But it's a difficult relationship. And so on this night, they are coming to him because they need him to do them a favor to just kind of rubber stamp, in a sense, the crucifixion and the killing of Jesus. And so they think, in their mind, they're doing God a service by getting it of Jesus, but God on this night, again, is sovereignly in control. He is using their sinful hearts to move things along to get Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins could be paid for. Let me just talk about this for a moment, and we'll move on to the second point. We can all at times struggle, if you've been in the faith for a while, with religious pettiness. Would you agree that at times we can do that? We have to fight it sometimes in our heart. Here's the thing about religious pettiness. It really gets consumed about externals and outward forms and rarely takes a close examination of the heart. And again, for three years, these religious leaders have been fighting Jesus at every turn. He is their long-awaited Messiah. But because their hearts were so darkened, they can't recognize Him and all the things that He is fulfilling from the Old Testament prophecies in the written text of Scripture. Their hearts are dark because they're more focused on their rules, their perspective, instead of an accurate interpretation of the Scripture. So religious pettiness often is more concerned about forms being violated than real grievance of sin that rests inside the heart. And it is always with legalism where truth can really get distorted. So religion that is caught up in ceremony instead of the substance of truth can easily ignore things and becomes a place of blatant hypocrisy. So with murder in their heart, they felt ceremonially clean. And yet with all the lies that they were committing, they just didn't think anything about it as well. And yet they didn't want to get near Pilate because they thought that's the thing that's going to cause the problem. Now before we move on to point two, I'll say one more thing. This kind of idea currently pervades our culture. Defiled people lead us often. Decisions that are made, things that are done um, are rampant around us and who in their own way, if you'll hear them talk sometimes, have a self-righteousness that has nothing to do with godliness. It's a self-righteousness, not a righteousness that is connected to God. And yet they aim and make decisions as if truth was their course, but truth is not their course. They themselves are their course and they are making decisions grounded in man-centered ideas. And so for those of us who live by the truth, we recognize this, don't we? We're like, okay, no, that's not the truth. We can see it, we can hear it, and we know that. And so I just, I remind us, the world has often been this way. It has been led by the defiled. Um, It will probably in many ways continue to be that way, and that's why it's important for us to understand what Jesus is communicating here today so that we would understand. So let's look at point two this morning, and I want to talk about the words of Jesus being fulfilled. Let's read it again, 29 through 32. 
So Pilate, they won't go into Pilate, so Pilate goes out to them and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? So Jesus is with them. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so Pilate said to them, well, take, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate ruled from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. There was, a, again, as I said a while ago, there was a mutual hatred between Pilate and the Jews. But irregardless, they had to deal with one another. And so at times, um, they had to try to make it work somehow. And so on this night, the religious leaders know they've got to go to Pilate and have a conversation with him. So they bring Jesus to the, religious, the Roman authorities for affirmation of what they have decided to execute Jesus. They're not going to go inside his palace. So he steps outside to meet them and he wants to know, okay, what's the accusation? What charge are you bringing against this, this guy that you've brought in here? Pilate ultimately knows what their motive is. Let me tell you what Matthew 27 says about this instance. Matthew 27, 17 says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now listen to what Matthew 27, 18 says. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy or jealousy that they had delivered Jesus up to Pilate. So he, he recognized Something's not right about all of this stuff that's taken place. They've come to me. He can see through the lies. He's a judge. He's probably had to deal with them before. This is not the first time that he's had to face their hypocrisy and some of the things that they want. And so he recognizes, though, in this instance, they are jealous of Jesus. No doubt that he's probably heard about Jesus. I mean, for three years, he would have heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. On Monday of the week when Jesus came into town and he marched in the old city, put palm branches down and they laid their cloaks down and they shouted Hosanna, just thousands upon thousands of people. Pilate would have learned about that as well, that what had happened on that day when Christ came in. And so now he's here before them and they're asking him, what charge, he's asking them, what charge do you bring against them? And he knows that it is out of jealousy that they have done this. And so Pilate, again, has likely dealt with their treachery before. He knows that his present here. To add another layer of this, men, men, every husband, look here. Y'all look, looking here? Listen to your wives most of all the time. They are wise. So something happens. They Probably what happens is this. So they come to Pilate's headquarters they, they, they come and say, we want to meet with Pilate. Well, come on in. No, we can't come in. This is going to defile us. So somebody goes in to Pilate and says to Pilate, hey, Pilate, the religious leader here, they want to meet with you. His wife is there. She probably wakes up, hears the conversation about Jesus, goes out, and then the Bible tells us this. It says this, that in verse 19 of Matthew 27, and besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, and as they were talking with him, his wife sent word to him and said this, have nothing, listen to what the wife said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate in his heart recognizes, okay, this is hypocrisy. They are jealous of him. And now his wife says, Pilate, don't do this. This is a righteous man. Listen to me. Don't do anything 
to this righteous man. And so he's got, he's got this double layer of things to think through. He recognized their lies. He recognizes their jealousy. And now his wife has sent word. But before Pilate, they recognize they're not getting anywhere with him. And the religious leaders now change the charge as to why they've come from a theological issue to now saying this. This is where they say, well, listen, Pilate, here's the deal. This guy has claimed to be a king, and so he's a threat to Caesar. And so you've got to do something about this because this guy is a king and is claimed to be a king. And so they move the charges again from a theological charge to now a political reason. By the way, this is blatant hypocrisy as well. Did, they, did any of the Jews care about Caesar? No. They don't care that Caesar is going to be, that Jesus is the religious leaders about, about whatever Jesus might say has is, is been an affront to Caesar. They hate Caesar as well. This is how much, look, I want you to notice this. This is how much people who had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament hated Jesus. Who should have known who he was. Should have recognized what Isaiah wrote, what Moses had written what you see in the life of Joseph Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, this prophetic picture of the coming of the Messiah. And all they want to do, all they have in their heart now is to get rid of him. This is exactly what Jesus talked about in John 15. They hated me without reason. They didn't even know why. Didn't, Didn't know why. They just hated me. And you'll hear today, in Christian circles, that man is, man and, men and women are good. By nature, we are good. We are not good. Our hearts, without the blood and the work of the Spirit, the blood of Christ and the work of the Spirit, we have no hope. There's a darkness that, that pervades us. Old Testament says that Paul quotes the Old Testament in Romans. There is none who do good. And so on this night, you see the darkness of the religious leaders' hearts. So Pilate says to them in 31, take him yourselves. I don't see anything wrong with him. You've got no charge. And so they basically say to him these words. Pilate, when he says, what charge do you bring against him? They don't want to have a discussion. They just want Pilate to make a pronouncement. And so they basically say to Pilate this, don't insult our integrity. We would not have brought him here if we, if we didn't think he was evil. And so Pilate says, no, okay, okay, then you go, you go deal with him yourself. Now notice what Pilate says here. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They did not tell the crime that Jesus had committed, just that Jesus was an evildoer. So Pilate in the moment throws it right back at them and says, you go deal with this. I want you to note again, sometimes smile when you read the scripture. Notice what this pagan, polytheistic, Roman governor, idol worshiper says to the Jewish leaders. He basically tells them this, you go and let Moses tell you what to do in your law with Jesus. 
So the irony here is huge. A Roman governor telling men who know Moses and who Moses wrote of Jesus to go and consult Moses what they ought to do about Jesus. God will get the last laugh always about things. And so in that moment, Pilate just puts it back on them. They have no response to Pilate other than to go back to the reason they came. We want a death sentence, Pilate. So will you give us the death sentence? Pilate seems to be not so agreeable at first. And so listen to how Luke records this. Luke 23, 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. So again, notice that they've changed the charge. It was blasphemy before, but now it's this. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, Well, I find no guilt in this man. But they pressed, they were urgent, they kept pressing, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And in these words, it doesn't change Pilate's mind about Jesus. He recognizes everything that they're doing, that it's all lies, it's all jealousy. Now I want to deal with this now, and then we're going to move on to the third point. Note what the last verse, verse 32 says under this point. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Keep your place in John 18 and go back to John 12 just for a second. Back in John 12, verse 32, Jesus speaks about how he is going to die. John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So John, as he's writing this gospel and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes now Jesus before Pilate in John 18. He goes back to John 12 to show that Jesus had already said what was going to happen. He would be lifted up from the earth. He would die. As a matter of fact, um, John also is drawing on what Matthew wrote. This is important. We look at all four Gospels and we look at other places to see that there is a consistent theme about things. So, so note this. This is important. You, you may have skipped over it and I skipped over it uh, probably for most of my life. But really stood out to me this week as, as I was uh, reading back through what I had written. So Jesus predicts how he's going to die. If he didn't die that way, do his words mean anything? No, they don't. So he predicts months before that he would be lifted up from the earth and he would die. And then you have to do cross-referencing, which is our third W in the W4, to go back and see what else is said. Listen to what Matthew writes from Jesus. This is Matthew 20, verse 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over, listen to this prophetic word, the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, which is happening now with Pilate, to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So this second point this morning is this. The fact that Jesus predicts the way that he is going to die, and he dies this way, gives clear indication that he is God, that he knows who he is, that he's got, he's got insight to things that nobody else has. He has said this is exactly what is going to take place. Now John writes here, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Very interesting. When the Jews executed people, they would shove them on the ground. You remember how Stephen died? They would throw them on the ground and they would do what to them? They would stone them to death. When the Romans killed people, they would lift them up and they would crucify them. And so here's Jesus knowing exactly how he was going to die, it is fulfilled in this prophetic word. And this is the case, and I love this. There's a lot of things not yet fully fulfilled yet that will be. Christ is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. That will be fulfilled one day. He is going to make every wrong right. He will bring justice to the world. He brings it now, but He will bring an ultimate judgment and a justice Eventually. And we must see this. That connected to the kingdom that which we are citizens of, every aspect of God's word will be fulfilled. We can count on it and we can have confidence in it. Jesus remains firm all the way through. Why? Because his life is guided in the prophetic true word of Scripture, and he stands in the truth, and it gives indication of his secured confidence in the Lord. They have, again, just say this before we move on, they have no crime to state about Christ. Jesus is innocent. So they say to Pilate, don't question us, Pilate. If this man weren't an evil man, we wouldn't be waking you up in the middle of the night. Just give us what we want. And again, they think that they are in control. Let's look now in 33 through 35. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation And the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? The tense in the Greek, when Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? The tense indicates it's a mocking question. Now note this. Pilate's been around kings and leaders, powerful people, for much of his life. No doubt he's heard about Christ. Now the religious, are say, religious leaders are saying, okay, this guy claims to be a king, and he's looking at Jesus, and he looks like no king that he has ever encountered. There's no army out on the streets battling. He's got this guy 
that's there in front of him. He looks like a commoner. He's, he, he, he doesn't stand out to Pilate. And so when Pilate asks the question, the tense in the Greek indicates it's mocking. You? Are you serious? You're the king of the Jews, is kind of what his tone was. You're the one that everybody's making such a fuss over. And so he does ask the question a bit in line with the accusation of Jesus being a king. And he is a king. He's king of all. And so Pilate asks him, are you, are you really the king? It helps for us to see an added, later to what, an added layer of what Luke writes. Luke writes in Luke 23 too, he says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Did the Jews give tribute to Caesar? Religious leaders? No way did they did. And so now they're on the side of Caesar in the moment, trying to protect Caesar because they're trying to manipulate Pilate to get what they want. We found him forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which, by the way, is a lie. Do you remember the only time Jesus mentioned Caesar? Jesus paid his taxes to Caesar. He told Peter to go catch a fish. Inside the fish, he'd open up the mouth. Inside the mouth would be a coin. Take the coin and go pay taxes. Jesus never, that we see, ever mocked Caesar, ever. So this is a lie. This is just another lie now from the sinful hearts of people. And so they say, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus responds to him in 34 and just says this, so Pilate, is this your idea that I'm the king? Or are you just regurgitating what the religious leaders have said to you? Pilate, is this your conclusion? about me? Is this your opinion about me? Do you you think that I am a king? And so there is, in today's world, listen, lots of lies about Jesus that people regurgitate. It's It's what lost people do. They just hear somebody's creative stance, creator's perspective of mocking Jesus and their hatred toward Jesus, and yet it seems righteous but it's just self-righteous and people regurgitate the lie you can go on the internet today and you could just see page after page after page of page of regurgitating lies about jesus and people never stopping to think it through and carefully examine what is said so Pilate. Sees that there's no provable, provable evidence that they have brought about Jesus. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying, Pilate, you ought to consider the facts for yourself. Not just listen to a bunch of religious hypocrites planning a death. You ought to listen. Pilate, is this your opinion about me? Or are you just saying what they are saying? Pilate answers Jesus in that moment, I'm sure very mockingly as well. Am I a Jew? Are you kidding me? I'm a Gentile. Sir, your own people brought you here tonight. I was sleeping. I didn't bring these accusations against you. So I'm listening to the accusation. So I'm not a Jew. I'm not judging you by Jewish perspective. 
I'm just asking you, are you a king? Are you a king? And so Jesus again asks him, so is this your own opinion? Or are you just quoting what they have said? And then he says, am I a Jew? Pilate is likely saying that he's not going to consider this matter from a Jewish perspective, but he's also saying this, that I'm really not interested in any kind of Jewish religious questions about this. I have no interest in that at all. He has no interest in going that direction with Jesus. And so Pilate says to him, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. So note what Pilate is saying. He's saying this, I've brought no charges against you, Jesus. Your own people. I don't see anything wrong with you. I don't see any provable evidence. But your own people have brought you here. Now listen. What was point before this? The words of Jesus are always what? Fulfilled. Pilate's word become a fulfillment of John 1.11. He came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. So that text is even being revealed though it was written later it's being revealed that his people rejected him it is not so unusual for those sometimes who seem to give evidence they know Jesus really well to end up being those who reject him so Pilate asks one last time so what in the world have you done why are we having this conversation I tell you What a question to ask. What had he not done? What had he not done in the last three years? He had taught. He had healed. He had cast out demons. He had stilled the wind. He had raised the dead. He had walked on the water. He valued and elevated women. He grieved with the broken. He stood against hypocrisy. He valued Samaritans who were seen as half-breed people. You know what his biggest issue was? He had crossed the religious leaders and they hated him. That was the thing that that they couldn't take. So what had he not done? He had done so much and he had come to reveal the glory of the Father. And so Pilate, though, has no idea of the seismic clashes that Jesus has had with the religious system that had greatly lost its way and with its leaders. And so he is in the dark that Jesus has destroyed their hypocrisy. He has called them out these very men who have brought Jesus before Pilate on this night. And so when Pilate asked, what have you done? There was not enough time on this night to talk about all that Jesus had done because he has done everything that is good and that is right. So it's interesting on this night, the judge of all the earth is being judged by sinners. Liars are lying against he who is the living truth. He who is the friend of sinners has been bound by sinners and now has ended up before Pilate, and ultimately Pilate is just not that impressed with Jesus who is before him. He doesn't look like a king. And I tell you, many are still this way. They're not moved by what you and I see of the glory of Jesus. And so they mock Christ and they reject him. There was nothing about Jesus that looked like a king to Pilate. So I want to close today and let's briefly look at some principles of how Jesus now responds to Pilate when Pilate says, so what have you done? Here's how Jesus answers the question. Let's read 36 through 38. So Jesus answered, my kingdom 
is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Okay, y'all ready? Nod, yes. Okay. Five really important things. And I'll assure you it's not going to take a long time. Five really important things we must embrace about the kingdom of Jesus. Here's the first one. Jesus is king. And not just king. He's king of kings and what? Lord of lords. So as we break these two verses down, here's the the first thing. We must remember Jesus is king. Kingdoms have kings. Kings have kingdoms. And so when Jesus says three times, by the way, he says here three times, my kingdom, indicating he's what? He's king. My kingdom. I have a kingdom. And so because I have a kingdom, I'm the king over the kingdom. So three times here he says the phrase, my kingdom. So he's beginning to state that he's the king of a different kind of kingdom. One that Pilate has never heard of, never contemplated about, different from the kingdom that's connected in a sense to the Roman gods that Pilate worships and embraces. So again, the current charge that they are bringing against Jesus has led to this discussion that Pilate now has. Are you a king? And so Jesus three times says, my kingdom, indicating I am a king. This is why Jesus in this will indicate and define for us the kind of kingdom that he reigns over. So the first principle of our understanding of the church, of the kingdom of God, is that it has a king. It has a king. And he has a name, Jesus, whose name is the highest name above all names. And so therefore, those of us who are redeemed by Christ, we have citizenship in this kingdom. He is king. That's not disputed. But here's the question. Is he king in our hearts right now, today? Do we live as if Jesus is king? What happens with a king? King establishes principles and precepts for the citizens of that kingdom. And they are to walk in those precepts and principles in obedience to those. But again, it's not like the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus isn't taxing us. He is not oppressing us. He is revealing himself and has revealed himself. The magnificent glory of who he is. So he's king. But is he king of our heart? That's his nature. He's king. And so each of us needs to examine our heart today. Am I I allowing 
the words of Jesus and the nature of Jesus and who he is to do they guide my life as he is king? The second thing to learn about this kingdom that we are a part of is it has a king, but secondly, it's a kingdom that's not like the world's kingdom. It's not a worldly kingdom. So Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. The kingdom of Christ is nothing like the kingdoms of the world. Jesus' kingdom did not begin with the same purpose like other kingdoms do. His is marked with all kinds of different aspects. When you look around at the kingdoms of the world today and even the kingdom of the United States of America, in a sense, they are protected by armies. They have borders. Maybe. Sometimes they do. That's a joke. That's an American joke, by the way. A Texas joke. They have rulers that change often or are overthrown. The kingdoms of this world have tyrants as leaders or they have some of the weakest leaders that you can have. The kingdoms of this world worship many gods, all false, or some of the kingdoms of this world push an atheistic worldview. The kingdoms of this world just allow evil to reign and they even legislate evil. The kingdoms of this world express their might at the cost, sadly, of their citizens. They don't really ultimately care about their citizens. They just care about remaining in power. Listen, Jesus' kingdom is nothing like that. So as Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus answers the question. When Pilate asks, what have you done? And he begins to talk about him being a king. Yes, I am a king. But I'm not a king in the way that you understand kings. Note this. He is king by nature, not by the citizens making him king. His very nature is he's king. Whether the citizens or anybody acknowledges that, he is king by nature. And yet there are citizens who love him and worship him. He is a king... Don't lose sight of this. He is a king over a spiritual kingdom. And he's king over our hearts. He is the king of the heart. Jesus' kingdom is designed to reign over the hearts of people where evil is conquered by his death and his resurrection and who he is. This kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And it's a kingdom over the heart that takes place in physical people, redeeming them bringing them from death to life. It frees people from sin. It it reconciles relationships. It brings lasting joy. It is a kingdom that's in this world right now, but it is not of this world. It is marked by by the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven and all that is holy and all that is righteous. It is an otherworldly kingdom. It is from heaven and God's the founder. So, so we must understand Jesus as he defines the kingdom that we are citizens of. He is the king. He's king of kings, Lord of lords. There is no other king. He is king. This kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of the world and what they do to people. His kingdom is about redeeming people, loving people, bringing them into relationship and pouring his heart out to them. And so therefore... We live as citizens of that kingdom 
valuing what Jesus values, not what the world values. We value and embrace what he thinks is important. Again, I remind us here that three times he says, my kingdom, my kingdom. Sometimes we act as if we've got a bigger charge and tell God what he ought to do. And he's king. We want him to be in charge, by the way. Look around. Look what it's like when we're in charge. Here's the third thing about the kingdom. Jesus' servants, therefore, fight for the truth. They don't fight to capture new lands. They fight to capture new hearts. So look what he says there in verse 36, the second part there. If my kingdom were of the world, if it were like the kingdoms of the world, Pilate, that you know about and that you're a part of, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered up to you and delivered over to the Jews. So here's what Jesus is saying to Pilate. I don't have a kingdom of this world, so you should lay aside any concerns that I'm here to overthrow Rome. It's not what, it's not what I'm here. I'm here to lay my life down to redeem people and to call people into relationship. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm not establishing a kingdom that is political, but I'm establishing a spiritual kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying to Christ's followers, they're not going to fight the earthly kind of battles that you see that happen on the planet all the time. We fight for something different. Here's why we fight for something different. Paul described it this way. We have another mindset because what has happened in us in salvation and in our redemption, Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, the kingdom, note those words, to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul, or Jesus telling Pilate, My servants have a whole different set of priorities, Pilate, and practices than the citizens that you see around here and that you're hearing tonight that they want to murder me. They fight, my citizens fight for the truth to be established in the heart of people and in every homeland. There is one true kingdom and it's one that is spiritual and it's the church, it's the redeemed people of God. And so therefore we are, the kingdom is marked by very otherworldly kinds of things. It sounds like this. This will be familiar. This is what citizens look like in God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. You rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I could go further on, and I will just for a second. 
The king, the citizens of this kingdom fight for truth, and so therefore they are not, they don't live angry with their brother, they forgive. They let their yes be yes and their no be no. They turn the other cheek, they go the extra mile, even with an unbeliever. They love their enemies, not just those who love them. They lay up treasures in heaven, rather on earth. We fight for truth. Paul said it like this three times. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then Paul is in Rome. He knows that Nero is going to put him under the sword. And he writes these words to Timothy a second time. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So I want you to look here for a second. Again, we're we're going to finish up here in a moment. Our great fight as God's people is for truth. So we speak it into the culture. We share it with a neighbor, the truth of the gospel. We stand against certain things that the culture exalts that are evil. We fight for truth. And for a long time the church has fought for a lot of things. And it's time for us to get back to fighting for truth and the glory of Christ. That's what Jesus says here. Listen, what we fight for is to not look like what the world's fighting for. We are to fight for the gospel to reign and rule in the hearts of people. That's how I was changed at age 17. Life totally, in a moment, just turned upside down when Christ rescued me. And gave me salvation and brought me into relationship with Him. And so we fight differently. We fight for the truth. Here's the fourth principle. Jesus' purpose is to bear witness to the truth. And so we join Him in why He came. So look at 37. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So again, Pilate says, so you are a king. Jesus has said three times, yes, my kingdom. Jesus said, yeah, you say that I'm a king. That's a true statement. I am a king. It's an affirmation of him before Pilate as to who he is. But my kingdom, Jesus says, operates in the realm of truth, not lies. Jesus doesn't say no to being a king here, but he affirms it. Now I want you to note, look at, look at what Jesus says there. You say that I'm a king. Look at the next, next words, phrases after that. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Two aspects of Jesus are mentioned here. His humanity, for this purpose I was born, and his deity, his preexistence. For this purpose, I have come. I existed before and I have come into the world. 
This is important to see and note. He was not, he didn't begin at his birth in Bethlehem. He had come into the world. And he didn't come into the world. Hear this. Please hear this this morning. He did not come into the world to be another Cyrus, a Pharaoh, a Nebuchadnezzar, a Donald Trump. He did not come into the world to be like the kings of this earth. He came into this world to be a king that was different than the kings of the earth. It's a different kingdom. And he came to bear witness to the truth. And his kingdom would conquer the hearts of people in salvation. As Christians, our great desire is to trust Jesus as king, not the earthly kings. We are citizens of another kingdom. Lastly, what guides the citizens of this kingdom? Look at the last part of 37. It's a kingdom of truth. Everyone who is of the truth, which is why I came into the world, listens to my voice. This must have just... Shorted out Pilate's brain in the moment. Look, Pilate, my kingdom is just not anything like you know. My kingdom is about a kingdom of truth, and those who are of the truth, they listen to what I say. This includes you, Pilate. Which side are you going to be on in regard to me? So, this is the purpose of Christ truth. We are to treasure and highly esteem truth. In everything, we are to long for it. We are to seek it. We are to find the precious treasure that is connected to the truth of God's word. Proverbs 23, 23 says, Buy truth, do not sell it. Do not exchange truth for anything, Solomon says. Buy truth, do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And as people, we want to listen to the voice of Jesus We want to long for truth to touch every area of our lives. We want it to touch our families. We want it to touch our view of politics. We want it to be a part of our view of education, how we talk, our priorities, how we spend our money, our relationships, our worth ethic, our work ethic. We want everything to be just invaded by the truth of Jesus. So Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth... The truth sets you free. Everyone who is of the truth, they know this, that the living Word is the truth and that Jesus is the Word. So the written text, Jesus is the living Word. He is the picture of what that looks like. And so God's people listen to the voice of Jesus. They listen to the voice of Jesus. I want to share this as we finish up today to show you that I'm just not blowing smoke on Sunday mornings when I talk about things out there in evangelical land, and particularly in regard to progressive Christianity. There are a lot of churches that, well, they call themselves churches, but they do not listen to the voice of Jesus. So last Sunday when we were here and um, we said to the mothers, we love you, thanks moms, and we gave you, a carnation, and you went, 
Yay, right? Every one of you went yay. Um, there was a church in Austin, Texas that was doing something completely different. And if you think this is, this is unusual for parts of what falls under Christianity, sadly it's not. So this church in Austin um, sang the song, Good, Good Father, but in exchanged the words and sang, Good, Good Mother to God. That's what they sang last Sunday. They quoted Psalm 23 and changed the pronouns in Psalm 23 from he to she. Not only that, but they prayed in a, a number of different things and called out to God as she and not he. They say this, and this happens a lot, they say our church is based on um, they, they say our, our, what we want is we want to make sure that people belong. Our church is not going to be ever based on beliefs. And that's just not what we've looked at this morning, is it? People are welcome to come and we want to love them, but eventually we have to be reminded this is a kingdom of truth. Of truth. And so we stand on the truth. And so Jesus standing before Pilate, gives this great affirmation. So I'll say just a couple of closing things. When one reads the scripture, if one does not hear the voice of Jesus, then you may not know him because Jesus says here, again, these are not my words, everyone who is of the truth, what do they do? What are they marked by? They listen to the truth. They listen to it. The father, by the way, said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That was said on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks clearly in his word. The Holy Spirit speaks. And when the Holy Spirit speaks, he leads us to see the truth in Scripture as is written there. And I love this verse. What's going to happen eventually to the kingdom that belongs to Jesus? Well, this is what Revelation eleven fifteen says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world, listen to this good news, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So when our king returns, he will swallow up the kingdoms that are remaining on the earth and he will be the king for a thousand years as he reigns here. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. So what's our takeaway today? We must remember that we are a part of a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. It has physical implications in a real world but it's a spiritual kingdom we are to remember we have one true king I know you hold me in such high esteem I'm not your king I'm not your king there's nobody on this planet 
that's been born of two parents who's our king. Our king is an eternal king. We have one king. One king. Thirdly, we are to fight for truth to reign. We fight for truth to reign. And lastly, we are to be experts on knowing the voice of Jesus. Everyone who is of the truth, Jesus says, listens to my voice. And when you don't listen to your voice, you'll sing on Sunday morning and nobody will stand up in a congregation and go, what are we doing today singing Good, Good Mother? Nobody stood up in that church, by the way, and said anything. They sang it. They sat there as they substituted the pronouns of God in Psalm 23. That's a place, and this is going to, again, I've been saying this for years now. Are we not seeing a lot of this stuff just come to fruition before us? And so what's, what's the call of God for our life? The call of God for our life is that if we are of the truth and we listen to his voice and we know it, it becomes, becomes the very thing that allows us to discern what is evil and what is truth. The call of God on my life and the call of God on your life, and in particular, I just want to talk about me for a second, to be a pastor and a communicator and a proclaimer of the gospel is to know the Bible more than I know the culture. The great thing for you is the same thing. How are you prepared for the lies of the culture? By knowing the truth. That's how you know it. And so we are to know his voice, and the only way to know his voice is to know the scripture. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.